through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI Radio listener. I am Joey Watson, and we are out of the box. If you're playing along for the first time, every Thursday from midday to one, I get to roll through the records of one person, their recollections too. Uh, no doubt, uh, if you've been anywhere near a news outlet over the past few months, you've seen the RFS giving us regular updates on the fires that have raged across the country. That means you've probably already met Sean Sweeney, but he's not a fiery. Nah, he's the other guy on the screen. The Auslan interpreter, translating the vital messages for deaf people. Sean comes uh, from deaf culture. He was born with perfect hearing into a completely deaf family, and he learnt sign language before he could talk. Sean, thanks heaps for coming on Out of the Box today. Not a problem, Joey. Thank you for having me here. What, what does it mean, what I just said? What does it mean to be born into deaf culture? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's something I never really questioned until I until I was being asked that particular question. Uh, deaf culture, well, it's got its, it's completely separate to the, the rest of the community because it's got its own language, it's got its own ways. And its own identity. So being born into deaf culture, for me, it's all about the language. And for the deaf community, that is also something they own, the language. And, I mean, I'm here because of the job that I do, which is sign language interpreting. So really, I've got to be thankful for my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents who are all deaf. So, you know, language gets passed on from one generation to the next to the next. So that's deaf culture. I get the sense it's it's beyond language. It's also about community as well. Is there something in that? Yeah, absolutely. It is all about community because they own it. It's all about identity. It's all about empowerment. And that's why sign language is really important to the community. Is that idea of deaf, deaf empowerment, does that have a long tail or is that a relatively... Yeah, it's, it's interesting. As a kid growing up, I used to, my dad used to always say to me, you know, a very short interpretation and he he would use a sign called deaf power. And I never really understood what he meant until I became an adult and an interpreter and a professional, well, not a professional interpreter, but I'm a, I'm a level two, the old-fashioned level two interpreter. So the, my dad used to always sign that to me, but now as a, uh, as a practicing interpreter within the community, I get it. I get the whole deaf power thing because... Dad was really proud of his language. He was proud of the way he communicated, which which is something I'm very pleased to carry on. And I'm very proud of the language that I use as well. So that's where it comes from. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Your dad was born deaf. Yes. What about the rest of his family? Well, dad's family, well, dad was from Ireland. So I call my dad's family the hearing family. And uh, my mother's family, which is my Australian family, which is all I know, is the deaf family. So my dad was born in Ireland, but he went to a deaf school with 800 other deaf students. And at that stage, I think it was probably about 150 years old. So this particular school had language, had culture, had traditional ways of living as a deaf person. So it got passed on from generation to generation to my dad. Anyhow, my mother, who's an Australian... And she is my deaf culture. She is my, my, that family, my Australian family is my deaf family. I didn't really know my hearing family. 
They're from Ireland. So it's an entire network when you're growing up of oh. people that, that can't hear. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a kid growing up, we used to go to our deaf club at Stanmore. And we used to go there every Friday night without fail. We put on our beautiful clothes, you know, our nice clothes, our pretty going out clothes. Not beautiful, but pretty. <laughs> We'd always make sure, mum would make sure that we're all dressed up nice and neat before we went to the deaf club. And we used to, you know, travel down Parramatta Road every Friday afternoon after school. This is before all these freeways were built. We'd drive down Parramatta Road traveling towards Stanmore and it would take us a solid hour. And we did that for years as a kid growing up. What happens at Deaf Club? What, what goes well, on there? Well, what happens there for the Deaf community? It's all about communication. It's all about being around their own people. For example, you know, we all get together at the, the local leagues club because local, you know, football teams play. We all meet up. We all chat. We all, you know, we just unload. We talk about what's happened during the week. And this is exactly the same as at the Deaf Club. They're all using the same language. They've all got this. There's no barriers at a deaf club for a deaf person who uses sign language. So that's why it's really important to have that regular meet. Right. And and what that, does that mean for relationships within the community? Is it a particularly tight-knit one? Yeah. What it is, is because we're such a small group, well, we're a, we're a subgroup within the wider community. Our culture, our language is something that's really important to us as a community. For the deaf people to meet up on a Friday afternoon back in the 70s and 80s and 90s was quite important because we didn't have Facebook back then. We didn't have social media. So a deaf person would meet up on a Friday night, catch up with all their deaf friends, spend the weekend together and do stuff and go to barbecues. And then on a Monday, they'd be back in the workplace and then they'd become the only deaf person in the workplace. So the, the isolation that occurs from Monday to Friday, you know, if you could imagine not being able to hear and not understanding exactly what's going on. And back in those days, in my, you know, we're talking 70s, 80s, 90s. Well, you know, if we go back into my grandfather's days, that's even further back again. And then we go back further again with my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother. You know, we're talking from the 1900s right through. So you've got to remember deaf people who are born into a hearing world experience isolation every single day of their lives. So Deaf Club's really important to meet up with people who use the same language, who've got the same identity. And when you get that, people want to have a chat and catch up and exchange information. Do you think given the importance of that community and how tight it all was, do you think that means it was kind of shocking for your mum to have a kid that could hear? It's a good question. I actually asked mum this question about 10 years ago and I remember saying to her, did you freak out about me being hearing? And she looked at me and she laughed. She goes, no. She goes, but I did ask Nana, oh my God, my son's hearing. And Nana said, oh, but that's okay. Don't worry. Hearing kids are all right. And uh, so mum just went, okay, no problems. He's going to be all right. Yeah, he's going to be fine. But um, but I grew up in a, in a community where you know, all my language models were deaf. All my female male models were deaf. So my influences learning from a deaf side of the world. So when I say that, I mean, like, for example, my grandfather was a real handy man and he used to work around the house all the time. And I've got these real vivid memories as a kid, always hanging out with my granddad while he was fixing things around the house. I mean, you know, back in those days, they were fibro homes and they always needed a bit of painting or a bit of a nail and fixing up a bit of timber here and there. And I remember talking to Grandad in the middle of the driveway. I'd be sitting there watching him working, and then he'd explain things to me all in sign language. So for me, it was just the norm. But then I started school, 
And in my report cards, which I went through, mum and dad kept, and I went through all my report cards, it all said, Sean needs more oral expression. So in other words, what I would do at the preschool or at the school, I would talk to him with a deaf accent because my influences were all deaf. So I would mimic their accents. And But then as kids who can hear, our voices evolve and then we just learn from everyone else. It's interesting uh, to discuss music, and I want to unpack this a little yep. bit throughout the program. But you'd think that growing up in a completely deaf family, in a, a deaf environment, yes. that you wouldn't really have a relationship with music in the family. But your mum did. Your mum did have yeah, a record player. Yeah, tell, she tell did. me about that. She did. She did. We. Um, I was probably about 14, 15 years old, and I remember mum bringing in the first record player into the house. And uh, and I remember it was just it was a very you know very basic record play with a couple of big speakers not like today where everything's you know stream you know nice very fine sort of speakers and what have you in the old days it was all bulky and I remember Mum would grab the headphones and plug it into the old AV on the on the stereo and put on the headphones with her hearing aids on and she would listen to music like um, Michael Jackson. And and the reason why mum loved Michael Jackson is because he danced so well. So for a deaf person, not only she could pick up on some of the sounds within the, the you know, Michael Jackson's pictures and what have you, and I couldn't tell you what she could hear, but she could hear something, and then she'd watch him dance on the TV. So for mum, that was quite a relaxing way to let herself go and experience music. It's interesting because people speak about music as the universal language, but that's not true of the deaf community. No, and no. In, so, I'd in some to... ways, you reckon it might be dance. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to say it would be dance because if you if you can't hear, but you can see the dancing, you'd be impressed by what's happening in front of you. So if you're talking about inclusion and everybody getting the same access... That's what we're talking about is dance because that means everybody can see. The people who can see gets to experience dance. But then, you, you know, you've got other parts of the, you know, the wider community such as the blind community who rely heavily on sound. So for them, it would be about the sound. But from my point of view, it's all about the dancing, I would say. Well, let's play uh, something for your mum then. Yeah, okay. Her record player. What, uh, what Michael Jackson track should we, should we push out oh, first? I reckon Billie Jean.
Gene, a Michael Jackson classic there. Uh, Sean Sweeney is my guest uh, on this show, Out of the Box and Podcast. He's the Auslan interpreter for the New South Wales Rural Fire Service in, during the recent bushfires. That is his trade. Uh, he's a product of deaf culture, which we're unpacking on this episode. Sean, how did you first learn sign language? That's an interesting question because I often would say things like, how did you learn English? And is people it? would say to me, oh, well, I just learnt it. Well, that's pretty much my response. It's the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Do you have a first word in that respect then? Um, I asked mum that question and she said bottle was my first word. Your bottle, you, yeah. signed, you, you were signing I, bottle. I used a particular hand shape and uh, one of my fingers and pointed it to my mouth and, uh, and I said bottle to mum. How did you learn spoken English then? Well, it's interesting. I did learn spoken English probably as I got older. I would have you know, spoken to the neighbours, I would have spoken to other kids. I would have learnt, learnt English that way. I didn't have like adults who stood around me and you know sounded out words, what have you, but what I did learn was sign language. So as a kid growing up, mum used to always sit me down and make sure I'd sign things properly, like the old English teacher who would say to you, don't speak English that way, That's you know this is the right way. Well, that was exactly the same with me with sign language. Is English and sign language very different oh, in, in their expression? How, how so? Well, we're talking two completely different grammar structures, firstly. Right. And, uh, and English is a spoken language and sign language is a spatial and visual language. So Naturally. I'm, I'm interested in that uh, idea of, of grammar structures. Mm-hmm. Is, mm-hmm. Is, does signing share a similarity to any language? Look, every... What, do you mean spoken languages? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no. What it is is that we can interpret meaning. That's what we can do. We can interpret meaning. And every language around the world... Has a different has every different spoken language around the world usually has a sign language that is different as well. So you have got to remember, language comes from communities, comes from identity, comes from culture. That's where language comes from. So sign language comes from a community that's got culture and it's got its own identity. Right. So therefore, that's the difference. The difference is is that our verbs are they pop up differently, our nouns pop up differently. English is a lineal language. Which is spoken directly in a you know in a particular structure, and and Auslan is completely different. So that's how you're working from one language to the next. 
I suppose that means that based on that idea of uh, Auslan and sign languages coming from community, that mm-hmm. they have to be expressive in a way as well. Mm-hmm. Is there poetry, mm-hmm. for example, in sign? Yeah, there is. You Some deaf people out there are incredible poets with sign language. You should see it. As a native user of the language, if it's done properly, oh, my God, it is beautiful to watch. It is. You just sit back, you relax, your eyes relax, everything, and you just watch the deaf person express themselves through sign language you can't you can't describe it to somebody who doesn't actually understand it but it's beautiful it it's, really is it's inc- incredible and, and pretty eye-opening because mm. i mean i i admit that i come to this seeing sign language as almost a very practical uh tool even yeah, uh, yeah. so the idea of it as being an entire um l- language is 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 eye-opening do yeah. you do you find that that stigma is kind of part of the trade? The stigma of it being a tool? Yeah. Yeah, look, sign language hasn't been... It's interesting you should say that. Um, sign language got recognised in the 80s. So what happened is that the Australian deaf community went through a massive change through the 80s where they got the identity and the language and everything was confirmed. And I actually missed that period. I actually wasn't a part of the community then because I went on my own journey as a person who could hear. Um, I, once I'd worked out that Auslan was a pure language for the deaf community, for me, it just empowered me because I just went, wow. So the, the sign language that I grew up with wasn't deaf and dumb. It was actually a language. So for me, because that's all I heard as a kid growing up, that's all I heard was the patronising reflection of the rest of the community. Oh, you poor little thing. Oh, your mum and dad can't hear. Oh, my God. So little things like that. And as a kid growing up, you used to think, oh, my parents, well, what's wrong with them? But I didn't know they, there was anything wrong with them because they were my parents and we spoke a different language. And so, yeah, so it's interesting. It's just, yeah, I, I've just experienced a lot of that. Do you think you had to wear that being othered, especially when you're young? Oh, That's 100%. Difficult. 100%. I, you know, Did you deal with it well? Oh, I did up until I turned into a teenager. And then as a young teenager, you think you're better than everybody else. You think you know more than everybody else. And so I just completely, I didn't own it. I didn't understand it. That's why. I didn't own my language and my culture until I was in my early 30s. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the next song is uh, we're going to play some Pink Floyd. Yeah. Um, introduce this song to me okay. from the perspective of, uh, of deaf culture. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting. I, what happened is that I would have been about 12 years old and uh, we were living in Manchester in England at the time because we actually went back to Manchester for 12 months. And... Um, and I remember the Pink Floyd, the, other, the, the brick in the wall came on. And it came, well, well I was at the, like a blue light disco in Manchester. I'll never forget this. And, um, and I remember standing there inside the, uh, the blue light disco looking at this big screen. And, um, and they had the Pink Floyd, they, um, another brick in the wall, the video clip up on the wall. And I remember looking at it going, where do I fit into this? You know, where's my brick? You know, another brick in the wall. Where am I? And I remember thinking to myself, that's me. And uh, and then being in another country, another culture, and another, well, not another language, we, 
see Australian Sign Language found their foundations come from British Sign Language. So so we could go to England and within you know a month of living in England we could use their sign language, not a problem at all. And uh, so as a kid growing up, I, I remember it really. It just it just reminded me how different I was because I was in England. I wasn't in this, you know in my home country of Australia. I was using a you know English sign language, Manchester sign language, and another brick in the wall was really important for me because it just takes me straight back there.
Floyd classic, another brick in the wall. Of course, uh, this show is out of the box. It's also a podcast, and my guest is Sean Sweeney. He's an Auslan interpreter. He grew up in a completely deaf family. Sean, when you were a younger guy, you made the decision to turn your back on the yeah. deaf world. Yes. Take me there. What was going on? Okay. As a young man, you know, 15 years old, I lived in Western Sydney. I, um, I, you know, I experienced divorce just like all the other, well, most kids. And so I blamed the divorce of my family on the deafness. But it wasn't really. It was about their relationship. It wasn't about the culture. It wasn't about the language. It wasn't any of that. It was just, it was just me blaming something that, in, in actual fact, it didn't have any sort of influence. Uh, what, what, what? How did you think about that at the time? I remember I was really pissed off, basically, because, you know, how dare I have a deaf family? And I remember being angry at that stage of my life. And um, so it was... And, and then I just made a few decisions to just sort of take my own path and, and learn and go on and and go through my... It's funny because you call it an identity, my hearing identity. So I had to, I sort of went down that path. What did that mean? What, what were you chasing in? I real didn't know. Times? I didn't know. What did, what did you find? What did I find? I always found I was never matched. I felt, was I ever comfortable? Probably not. Probably not. I, there were some things I remember some people used to say things to me, and I used to think to myself, oh, okay, I didn't understand that. Why? And it's because I didn't grow up in that culture. I didn't grow up in that hearing world. I, I'm completely different world, a different path and everything. But when I came into the hearing world, I thought I was the part of the hearing world, but I actually wasn't. Do you have an example of that? What, what, what is, mm. How does that actually play out? What are the things that well, make a lot you of, think, a lot of you know, vocab, from here? A lot of vocab, a lot of English vocab that I didn't know, but I knew the sign for it in sign language. 
and I understood it in sign language. But when I heard it in English, I went, "What does that mean?" Because English is your second language. Yeah, and I used to think, "What does that word mean?" And but I never had anyone to sort of. I didn't have a dictionary to go to to say, you know, what's this mean in Auslan? And then somebody tell me in Auslan what it means, and I would have got it. But um, but I didn't have that at that time. Now we do. It's all there. Everything's there. We got meaning for this. We got meaning for that. And what we get. It's funny because when I don't understand something. I look at my beautiful wife and I say to her, I say, what's that mean in sign language? And then she'll sign it to me and I'll be like, oh, okay. And then, and then I get it. I get it completely. And um, which adds to my vocab, which is what it's all about. And that's how we all learn as human beings. So, What sort of life did you set up for yourself in the hearing world? Oh, just a normal life. You know, I went and worked and had a family and a couple of kids and and just, yeah, just like everyone else, but I just never really understood my deaf culture, my deaf identity. I just didn't understand it because I didn't allow myself to understand it. And it wasn't until I came back to it that I went, oh, I get it now. And when I had that penny drop, wow, then I went through a massive emotional stage of my life you know, for about 12 months to 18 months. So that was an experience of finding myself and understanding that I was different. What brought you back? What brought me back is that I was looking for something. I was looking for something in my early 30s. I, I, I got a little bit lost. I got a little bit lost and I and I thought to myself, well, what brought me back? Okay. Is that I got a little bit lost and I ran into an old deaf friend of mine. And I was chatting with her and we we're just having this fantastic conversation. And she said, and we talked about, you know, you know, what I was going to do for work. Was that that stage of my life? I wasn't, I wasn't working. I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I had a part-time job driving a tip truck. So I was driving a tip truck, but I, but I remember thinking to myself, Jesus, what am I doing? I'm not going to be doing this forever. And, um, and then when I ran into my deaf friend, she said to me, she goes, oh, why don't you become an interpreter? And I looked at her and I laughed. I said, me, an interpreter, you're joking. And I actually said to her, I cannot sign. And she looked at me and she just turned her nose up and we went, you are kidding me, aren't you? And, and I looked at her and I went, what do you mean? And for me, I already had the language. I just didn't know it had a label. I didn't know there was an identity attached to it. I didn't know there was a culture attached to it. I didn't know. And um, because your parents don't explain that to you. I mean, do your parents ever say to you, so do you understand English culture? Do you understand hearing culture? We don't because we just grow up thinking we, we are who we are. And, um, and it wasn't until, I, until, that, until she said to me, oh, look, come on, blah, 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 become an interpreter. And I went, oh, okay then, I'll, I'll look into it. So I, I looked into it. One thing led to another. One door opened here. One door opened there. And then I got my foot in the door working at Granville TAFE. And this is 20 years ago. And at that time, you didn't need to be accredited because they were desperate for interpreters. And, and I wasn't an interpreter. I was, I was the person that knew how to sign. That's all. I just knew how to sign. I knew how to talk to people. But I wasn't an interpreter. So to become an interpreter, there's all these pathways now to learn how to become an interpreter, which is fantastic. You know, somebody could come to the to the community with zero knowledge of the language and within four to six years could be a qualified interpreter out working full time as an interpreter. Mm. Now, I went on a massive learning journey because what happened is that I, when I came back to the community, I got my foot in the door at Granville TAFE and I did my first volunteer interpreting job for the seniors group which were learning how to use a computer 
So I remember walking in there with my TAFE consultant at the time, uh, Julie Tate, and uh, she, you know, she put me put me in right in right in you know she put me in the basically on the hot spot and and uh, the hot seat and I said I went oh okay then so I started interpreting and I remember the word PowerPoint. Right, I had no idea what a PowerPoint was. Right, I didn't know it was a you know a projection up onto the wall. I had no idea. So, a PowerPoint when you don't know what the word PowerPoint in its context is an electric PowerPoint. And I remember interpreting this computer class and signing electric PowerPoint. And all the deafies, all the all the deaf guy, like all the seniors, are all looking at me, going, "Did he just say an electric PowerPoint?" And I looked at it and went, well, isn't that what a PowerPoint is? But we, as we know now, or as I know now, it's a PowerPoint on the computer means it's information being projected up onto the wall. So I used a completely wrong sign and, you know, I went electrical PowerPoint and it's actually a PowerPoint. So, yeah, so that was a bit of a, a, a nice learning sort of high come to interpreting and that made me realise, wow, there's a lot to it. So it's a real technique and, and one that's very difficult. How do you get good at it? You, you learn. Exposure. You understand how the language works. You understand how English works. You understand the context it's being used in, and then you deliver the message. That's the key. The key is to to get exposure to whatever you're going to be talking about. In an ideal world, as an interpreter, preparation is the key. As for anybody, anybody that walks out onto a stage, they've already prepped what they're going to say. It's exactly what the interpreter needs because there's nothing worse than as an interpreter walking out with no prep and going, you know, basically you're starting cold and then you have to understand what they're going to be talking about and the intent of what's being said and the message, message they want to deliver. So if you don't get that prep, it can make it really, really hard to interpret. So that's really, really important. One um, thing that is very noticeable about uh, Auslan interpreting mm-hmm. for anyone that's gone to any event or, or yeah. seen it on the telly is how bodily and expressive yeah. it is? Yeah. Is that part of the trait? Yeah, of course it is. It's a part of any language. It's even your language. When you speak, your eyebrows move, your head nods, your body shifts, you go lean forward, you lean backwards. You don't even realise how much body language you actually use when you speak. If you watch the the news presenters, you sit down and watch what they do. You watch how the movements in their eyes and their cheekbones and their forehead and, and so on. With Auslan, it's all a part of the language as well. You need to have the movements on your face to complement what signs being said. So, you, you get if you get there's this website called um, oh, it's, it's absolutely slipped my mind. Sign Bank, that's it. Sign Bank. If you Google Sign Bank, there's a whole dictionary there that you can put a phrase in or a word in, and someone signs at you and shows you what exactly the sign is. And you'll notice that there's no facial features; they're all just like just really plain faces. And the reason being is, is that the facial features complement the sign that's being said. So it could be present tense, past tense, and so on. So it's it's really, really important to have the expression because if you don't have expression, you've got no meaning. Right. Was there a moment in that transition back into your community where you came to realise that these were your people? Or oh, did it happen yeah. gradually? Yeah. What yeah. was the moment? Take me there. Oh, the moment was, oh, yeah. I went on a bit of a journey for about two years where I... I went through a massive moment of realisation and missing out. I felt like I missed out on 15 years of my life because I didn't really understand the community I grew up in. And by doing that, what had happened is that I was like this 
a sponge and all I wanted to do was learn more and more and more. So I was forever throwing myself into things going, oh, yeah, why? Oh, yeah, they explained it that way. Oh, of course, yeah. And then I'd watch deaf people and watch how they would express themselves and how they use the language. And, and as you'd appreciate, everybody uses language differently. Even in spoken language, everyone uses it differently. And, you know, we got professional people that know how to speak clearly in front of the TV. We've got radio announcers that speak a certain way. We've got people, you know, coming from the demographic and wherever they're from, they speak differently. So it's the same thing happens in sign language. So for me, it was really important to know the language and to understand my own father because I needed to make a connection with my dad, which I did, which was unbelievable. What did that involve? Well, what it involves is me understanding him. His history, him growing up, where he grew up, the languages that he uses. Because not only does he use Australian Sign Language, he uses British Sign Language as well as Irish Sign Language, which is Irish Sign Language is one-handed and British Sign Language is two-handed. So there's already a massive difference between the two languages. So for me, I used to think my dad, I could never understand my clear, never could understand my dad clearly. But that was only because I didn't understand him as a human being. But once I got it, oh, my gosh. The first time we caught up to each other, once I got it, we had a 16-hour conversation, and it just we just talked and talked and talked and talked. He was, I walked out into his backyard, and he was in the veranda. He was sitting on the veranda, and I walked around the corner and said, Hey, Dad, how are you? And he looked at me and said, Good. You've changed. That was the first thing he said to me. And I went, Yeah, I have. Sorry, guys. That's really... If we can keep going there, what what happened after that? <sighs> yeah, sorry about that. I just got a little bit emotional. Um, what happened? It was understanding. It was really getting it. And... Um... Sorry, guys. Yeah, so look, for me, it was about connecting with my dad. And uh, that was really important for me at that stage, yeah. To move it forward a few years, Sean, mm-hmm. uh, the bushfire crisis breaks out. Oh, yeah. Uh, what were you doing when the call from the <laughs> New South Wales Rural Fire Service came What was to I you? doing? This is hilarious. I was kicking the tyres on my boat trailer. I was getting ready to go away to Jervis Bay and I was going to do some fishing. I just closed the business up. We were just ready to, you know, as you do, you get everything ready the night before. We're getting ready to shoot off the next morning. We're going to go down the coast. We had, a, you know, we had a shutdown for two weeks. I was out of here. I was completely out of here. And I'll get this phone call. I just finished, you know, kicking the tires on the trailer, looking over the boat, and I just cracked my first beer. And it was a beautiful afternoon. And um, and then I get this phone call, and it was Anthony from the RFS. And I was like, oh, I said Anthony, you know, and he, and I, he sort of said Sean. I said yes, mate. And he's like. We need an interpreter for tomorrow morning. And I was a little bit taken back because I thought they had a relationship with the other organisation. Because in my head, I was on holidays. I was gone. I was out of here. And then uh, I got the phone call and then I just had the, you know, two-minute, three-minute conversation with Anthony. And, uh, and I said to him, mate, if you need an interpreter, I'll be there first thing tomorrow morning. He said, yep, great, awesome. I'll see you then. And then that's when the chaos started. <laughs> What was the room like? Tell me where you were based and, and how, how did it work? As in at the RFS? Mm. Yeah, it's funny because we um, there's a media room down there. 
And I turned up at 6.30 in the morning, and I was a little bit sort of sheepish, you know, walking in. I'm like, wow, okay, then what's this place like? And and, uh, and they were lovely. The RFS were fantastic. They took me up to this media room, and that's when I met all the other, you know, media outlets, cameramen, reporters, and what have you. And I met the media staff in charge of the RFS. I got talking to them, and then I tried to get as much information as I possibly could before the broadcast would start. I asked them for some advice because I'd never done a broadcast before. Anyhow, so I, you know, got in there and um, worked with the the RFS and. I remember walking into this room and all these cameras were all set up and there was this backdrop and a little lectern and what have you and that's what that's what's on that's what you see now on the TV. And so they had me standing right next to the lectern the first you know the first couple of broadcasts and I was sort of okay then I was I, was, I felt like I was sort of squashed in there. And then they realized they work out that I was quite a big big lad and I was a big boy in front of the TV and and the and the premier and the commissioner and they're all you know a little bit shorter than me and a little bit more smaller than me and and the cameramen were all laughing in the background going wow we've got to get this big fella inside the screen and um, so it was interesting the first broadcast uh, sort of I, I, I kept on focusing on the community because you've got to remember sign language is so different from the 10 year old right through to the 80 year old and uh, because you've got to remember every generation uses language differently like I don't speak we don't speak like our grandparents there's no way we speak like our, you know we got different vocab to what our grandparents had so as a sign language interpreter I had to really strip it back and really deliver the message in a very visual component, like in a very visual way. Uh, so the first broadcast I did, I was a little bit nervous and what have you, and then I sort of reflected upon it and I contacted because I've got, um, you know, I've got people who I can ring and get some advice from who have all been in these particular, you know, positions. So, so that was interesting interpreting the uh, the first broadcast. But uh, yeah, the the room is just a, you know, it's a standard sort of, just, uh, you know, it's probably. Just a standard twin bedroom, I suppose, with a whole bunch of seats in there, and there's cameras everywhere, and they squeeze them in there, and uh, so that was yeah, that was interesting. That was good fun. Do you ever hear back from the deaf community that you're kind of acting as the conduit to? Yeah, look, I. Do you mean during the interpreting process? Uh, yeah, or, or I mean actually during the the fire process itself. Yeah, look, I, mean, I, I got as, a lot of feedback on Facebook. Yeah, I got a lot of feedback. What it sort was, of stories were you hearing? I was hearing, wow, this guy's, you know, I could, he's amazing with the language, and I kept on seeing all the positive feedback from the community, and a lot of the community members were contacting me personally on on the private message on Facebook, and they're all saying, oh my God, Sean, that's amazing what you're doing, a great job. Not only can I understand it, I know my, you know, other people. In the community would understand what you're saying. So I was on the right path of delivering the message from the minister and from the uh, premier and from and from the prime minister. I suppose I forgot about him. <laughs> yeah, so we got the prime minister, we got the New South Wales premier, and then we got the uh, RFS commissioner. So so I had to make sure I delivered the message, you know, in the best way I could with the short amount of time that I had. Did you know about any um, members of the deaf community that had to evacuate, for example? Uh, I, knew, I I know of some people who are on standby getting ready to evacuate I heard of somebody on the far south coast who was evacuated um, and saying that yeah I actually do know somebody was, I've got um, deaf employees who run my administration staff and um, at Sweeney interpreting and all the all the, one of one of my administration staff was actually one of the ones who experienced she was 
was in one of the evacuation centres and she said that the only way she got the information was through her iPad on Facebook and she watched me interpret what the RFS was saying and she said to me that she was the only deaf person in those grounds and there was so much information flying around that she didn't really understand what was going on and it wasn't until she looked at the Facebook on the on her iPad and then she was like, oh, my gosh, there's Sean. Oh, my gosh, is that's what's happening. So she got to find out all this information by using the social media side of Facebook. Sean, uh, we're going to have to play a track to uh, wrap up this episode yep. of uh, Out of the Box. Uh, we'll put some Jimmy Barnes on. That's what you selected, a kind of uh, yeah. homage to your Western Sydney roots. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's... It's strange me asking you to play music. You know what what happens when you when you coming from deaf culture yeah. listen to Cold Chisel. Yeah, look, Cold Chisel is something I grew up with. So when I, when I say grew up with, I I sort of came to it as a as a teenager listening to you know other friends who were listening to it. So I sort of listened it through that way. I didn't hear it at home. It wasn't at home that I heard it. It was outside of home. So for me, you know, Cold Chisel, I mean, as a young Australian, you, you can't really miss out on music like that. It's sort of everywhere. And uh, for me, Cold Chisel is sort of relates to how I grew up in Western Sydney, you know, growing up in a family of deaf people who who were all, you know, had to work hard, really hard every day to to create an equal footing in today's society. And I got to experience that. And so a lot of Jimmy Barnes's songs is all about, you know, it's very personal, it's very reflective. So that's why I love listening to Cold Chisel slash Jimmy Barnes, yeah. Well, with this week, as every week, an enormous thank you to my producers, Bree Jones and Rebecca Merrick and Sean Sweeney. Thanks for all your work and thank you so much for being my guest on Out of the Box today. Not a problem at all, Joey. Thank you for having me here. the one
This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Hold up. 